0: Welcome to Who's in STEM? I'm Ken Ono, your host and the STEM advisor to the provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics at the University of Virginia. On Who's in STEM? Our goal is to evoke flights of imagination and wonder by showcasing the cornucopia of all that is STEM at UVA. The marvelous world of UVA science technology, engineering, and mathematics. As a teen in the 1980s, I discovered cycling. I explored the gorgeous, windy roads of Baltimore County. On my 21-pound Peugeot PSV-10 racing bike, clad in wool cycling shorts, Italian-cleated cycling shoes, and a flimsy hairnet helmet, I imagined myself racing the Europeans on the roads of the Tour de France. I learned about the importance of exercise, both for physical and mental health. My early morning rides before school were my first experiments in deep meditation and visualization. And I learned that I'm at my best in a trance-like state, enjoying a union of body, mind, and soul. These are skills I put to use today as a theoretical mathematician. There was this intersection near Loch Raven Bridge a picture postcard spot. Imagine a lovely tree-lined lake, joggers, fishermen casting from the bridge, and cyclists like me. I absolutely abhorred this lovely spot. You see, my early morning rides were almost always disrupted by the stupid traffic lights that were timed to a fixed pattern, regardless of the time of day and regardless of the traffic. And in the early morning, There was no traffic. It was usually just grumpy little old me and my bike. Just as the obedient kid, I stopped, waited the two minutes, sometimes shivering in the cold and rain, waiting for no one and for no reason. That was then, the 1980s. Today, the world is different. We're constantly interacting with our cities, sensors on roads that decide how to divert traffic from one jam to another, Homing that brings fresh water from the environment to reservoirs and then to our homes, and so on. It's a delicate balance to figure out how to make human-city interactions both efficient and sustainable.
1: The destination is on the your left. sign is on to cross. Jefferson Park
0: Yup. We want smart and durable cities. Our guest is UVA civil engineer Devin Harris, who spent his career addressing questions that come from built environments spaces that people inhabit, homes, roads, and workplaces. He uses imaging technology in clever ways to help buildings serve us rather than the other way around. But first, let's celebrate Who's Making Discoveries. UVA physicists, in collaboration with Fermilab and the U.S. Department of Energy, are making their final touches on the Cosmic Ray Veto detector to better understand the particle physics that makes our universe. This detector hopes to observe subatomic particles known as muons decay into electrons. UVA chemistry PhD students Rochelle Turiello and Rena Nuari are using application-driven chemistry to expedite DNA profiling. And they've completed a working prototype. Potential applications include early cancer detection and crime scene investigation. UVA health researcher Eileen O'Rourke and her team are developing a potential anti-aging approach for healthy living. They propose a two-enzyme approach to facilitate autophagy, a cell rejuvenating process. The approach aims to detoxify the body of glycerol and glyceraldehyde, harmful byproducts of fat that naturally accumulate over time. And that's Who's Making Discoveries. Today, we're talking about engineering smart cities. Professor Devin Harris, the chair of the Department of Engineering Systems and the Environment, works to detect the impact of urban structures on our daily lives. He is also the director of the Center for Transportation Studies, where he supports outreach and education programs in the broader Virginia transportation community. Thank you, Professor Harris, for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Many of us commute to and from work and school each day, and we are acutely aware of traffic patterns for better and actually often for worse. How can engineering improve our lives?
1: Yeah, interesting enough, when I listened to your story at the beginning about how infrastructure impacted your commute on your bike, it actually goes into what infrastructure is supposed to do, and it's really supposed to serve the needs of the community and the public for good.
0: Where were you in the 1980s, Devin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's the same challenge as it was in the 80s.
0: So what kinds of questions drive your work today?
1: I think the way I would look at my work today is we're looking at designing solutions, engineered systems for a future that's unknown and uncertain. But at the same time, we're ultimately trying to bring our existing infrastructure systems into the fold and prepare them for what that future may look like. A lot of this work really centers on how do we keep and create an agile infrastructure? How do we build it and preserve it for a long service life?
0: So give us an example of how your work have made cities smarter.
1: Yeah, I think the approach that we take in my group centers on sensing. We do a lot of work on sensing of the built environment, and we don't sense for the sake of sensing. We actually sense to understand condition state, we sense to understand performance and prognose scenarios of what might happen under different environmental conditions or different loading scenarios. So really what we're looking at is understanding how a structure is maybe performing today and how it might perform into the future.
0: So what kinds of things do you sense?
1: Yeah, so it depends on the structural system that we're looking at or the infrastructure system. For the work that I do mostly, it's things like mechanics. So we're understanding deflections and rotations and accelerations, things that sort of describe the physical response of a structure to the operational environment. Those are typical, but we do also sense things like temperature because if you look at a lot of our structures, they're actually subjected to the environment and they move in response to that environmental loading. So temperature is a common type of sense Mm, as well. I
0: see. I'd love to see the sensor data of like JPJ during a UVA basketball game. That'd be fascinating to study.
1: Yeah, it'd probably be a combination of excitation, so acceleration. You You think of the students jumping, you think of the UVA chant. Those are prime examples of things that would be measured.
0: I wonder if your sensor could actually predict the score without (laughs) keeping track of the score. So I've read a little bit about your story. You've been profiled by the university a number of times, and I want to talk about that. So first as a kid and then as an adult, I understand that you bounced around a lot. Tell us about your path, and in particular, how has your history of experiencing many different places, how has that inspired your work in engineering?
1: Yeah, I've lived all over the place. I was born in Philadelphia, and we moved to California when I was really young, and I spent most of my youth actually in the Caribbean. Most of it was in Puerto Rico, and then there was a period of time where we lived in Jamaica and Barbados, and I went to boarding school during that time. And that was all during the time frame of high school.
0: So based on your many experiences, beginning with your time, brief time in Philadelphia, and then your time in the Caribbean, how do your life experiences frame the questions that drive you as an engineer?
1: Yeah, I think I've actually reflected on that question more recently than I did earlier. And, you know, the answer that that I'm also most usually settling on is that when we look at most of the places I've lived in, they're often resource constrained, meaning they're space constrained. And we have to maintain what we already have. Well, because we're not easily able to build new things, right? If you think of like an island like Puerto Rico, it's an island. It's really difficult to get resources in and off the island. And that's a common challenge. So I, I, when I look at what I do now, which is really focused on existing infrastructure systems, I think that actually has a very, very strong influence on the path that I've taken over time. You know, I grew up scuba diving. I've never figured out how to inspect structures <laughs> as, a, as a diver, but it'd be a, it'd be an amazing opportunity to do something like that.
0: Oh. We should talk about that, I like scuba diving myself. So getting back to the smart cities, the cities that you work on are clearly cities that already exist. So we're really not able to implement the theoretical perfect smart city because we can't build cities from scratch. So how do you, in your work, go about overcoming these obstacles? How do you modify your plans to fit existing cities?
1: That is a, ultimately a very, very large challenge. Uh, as you mentioned, most of our cities are already built. We do build new assets within a, an existing city pretty regularly.
0: So when you say incorporating new assets into a city, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a new subway line? Or give us examples. Of-
1: yeah, so maybe one of the most like common examples of something that would fall into a smart city would be like a new building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we build new buildings on a regular basis. Sometimes we tear ones down, and sometimes we retrofit existing structures. But a new building is something that is going to be energy intensive. It's one of the major contributors to energy use in an urban city or even a rural community. So we would likely want to utilize things like sensing and data to actually inform how that building is operated. That Things like energy efficiency, occupancy detection, emergency response, disaster resilience, things like that is how we sort of try to equip our existing infrastructure or new infrastructure properly.
0: So a new building, if you were to design a new building, say the Manning Institute for Biotechnology, which we'll be building at the Fontaine campus shortly, what would be your dream for the smartest lab building that we could build here at UVA?
1: I would say that it's going to be obviously fit for the purpose that it was intended. I assume it's going to be a research space, a research facility. So obviously proper labs equipped with safety precautions, so things like fume hoods and wet labs and things like that. But I think really from a you know sustainability perspective, we need these buildings to be efficient number one. So that's kind of a materials challenge and a design challenge. But we also need them to be agile, meaning that they respond to the current conditions and potentially future conditions. So a smart building might look like one that is detecting how people are coming into and out of the building and how they're using it properly and you know, turning lights off effectively, mm-hmm. pumping air into the right spaces to create clean, breathable rooms as opposed to keeping stagnant conference rooms
0: so regarding the sensing privacy is a it's a big issue right now if there are cameras and sensors all over the place what kind of assurances can you give ordinary people like me that the sensors are being put to good use
1: yeah I, I, that's that's actually a, a very very difficult challenge because in the end what we're trying to do is not necessarily detect individual users in anything we do so when we engineer systems we build that into the plan you know, an example would be something like a – pick a hospital as an example. If you go into a hospital, you really don't want to be able to see what patients are experiencing. But you want to know, is the the air quality bad? You know, do they have adequate fluids for whatever their needs may be? So I think you have to build these protocols into are the your – Or the
0: contagions smart- floating in the – Yeah, yeah the, right. those,
1: those, are, those are scenarios. And that's a little bit outside of my space. But, you know, those are examples of how you might design something, you know, fit for the purpose that it's intended, which is to serve the person who's in that space.
0: So turning to examples of existing cities, we have to talk about Charlottesville, our hometown, a town built around a great university. In what ways can your work make Charlottesville smarter?
1: I think the way I would say that our work holistically is gonna make Charlottesville smarter is actually leveraging the collective intelligence of the whole community. So it it is gonna be an engineering challenge, but it's also a community challenge. Some examples of how Charlottesville is already smart, We look at the examples of the bus systems that exist here in Charlottesville. You know, historically we would look at a bus system that would show up at a certain time and you get on the bus and you get off at a certain time and you hope it's on time. Now we actually have monitoring of the buses that allow us to know where they are at a given time. We also have access to things like how many people are on the bus at a given time. So it kind of gives us information on usage.
0: Amazing. I remember when I used to take the bus when I was in college, The idea that you could have any clue as to where the next bus would be, that would have been mind-blowing to me. So, yeah, thank you for helping us make our cities smarter. So now turning to your work as an engineer here at UVA. You're a member of UVA's Link Lab, and I've heard so much about this lab. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the idea is to bring together diverse engineers, engineers with expertise that run the gamut, with the idea of investigating and improving issues that are at the intersection of technology with physical space. Tell us about the lab.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Link Lab is UVA's cyber-physical systems laboratory, and it's actually under the the direction of Professor John Goodall, who is actually a civil engineer by training. And the Link Lab focuses on a couple of core areas, one of them being smart cities, another being smart health, and then the third being autonomous systems. And there's also an intersection of a technology of um, Internet of Things. So all those fall within the umbrella of a smart city. So if we think of all the different aspects that are part of a smart city, sensing autonomous vehicles, they all have to interact at some point. And the idea behind the Link Lab is really bringing these convergent researchers together. So if you think of a civil engineer, we want to apply technology to our civil infrastructure. Often that's done with collaborations for computer science and electrical engineering. How do we implement these technologies in our complex infrastructure systems? And, you know, some of the work that the Link Lab is really focusing on is establishing what is a smart city and can we do it in our own space? Um, There's an initiative that we're pushing forward on now is trying to establish UVA as its own smart city, right? We have all of those interesting assets. We have people, we have buildings, we have Bridges, roads, water systems. And we also have a lot of data behind the scenes that actually make it an ideal candidate for trying something like this out.
0: That's super. That's super. And by the way, President Ryan and Provost Baucom, one of their main grand challenges is about modernizing the world, preparing the world for our digital future. So, Professor Harris... You were formerly the director of the Clark Scholars Program, which provides an extensive set of educational and financial opportunities to students from underrepresented groups in STEM. Tell us about the program.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. This program is actually a really interesting one that is supported by the Clark Foundation and matched by a gift from the university, the Bicentennial Fund, which is a significant investment. And the intention of the investment is actually invest in the students. From an engineering school's perspective, you know we typically provide our students with foundational technical training. And the model for the Clark Scholars Program was to actually give them additional education and training that extends beyond that. So training in business intended to give them um, experience in service and leadership, but also give them global perspectives. There's a global experience as part of the program. And the model of the program is actually built on a cohort. So the students work together in early stage they get to know each other. They, They establish a sense of community and they're all progressing towards a common goal.
0: So when do students enter this program? Do they apply to this program in their first year? or their second year? How does that work?
1: Yeah, so the students who are admitted to UVA, there is a requirement to have a demonstrated financial as a basis of the program. But the students are invited to apply if you meet that criteria, and then they're selected to join the program. And they join, interestingly enough, in the summer prior to their first year. So they actually have to commit to a six to seven week summer intensive program where they take some of their early courses. And they actually build community. So it's, it's a four-year program. So the idea is that they're living and learning together in those early stages, and they form that community that hopefully carries forward for their entire time.
0: So how many students are there in a typical cohort?
1: Our current model is 20 students. We started with 15 per cohort, and we're, we've moved up to 20. And it's supposed to go on in perpetuity.
0: So as a former director of this program, I'm sure you got to know 15 to 20 students every year very well. Right? You must be very proud, right? Are there some stories you could tell our audience about uh, successful Clark Scholar graduates?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I could think of probably a few stories, but I, I think it's probably important to note that like we just graduated our, our first cohort last year. Oh, okay. Um and, and the second cohort's slated to graduate this year. So a couple of key points is 100% graduation rate which is amazing and also 100% placement post graduation so almost all of the scholars went into industry in some form and we had a few that are actually going to graduate school and you know kind of reflecting back on our discussion about the link lab we actually have one student who has started her PhD at UVA working with a faculty member in the link lab and you know it's it's fun now to see her in that capacity as a researcher transitioning from being a Clark scholar which is primarily our undergraduate
0: program. Well, that's amazing. That's great. Programs at work. Well, thank you Professor Harris for being here today. You're a shining example of President Ryan's vision for UVA. That vision is to be great and good in all that we do. And thank you very much for making the world and UVA a better place. I'm Ken Ono, STEM advisor to the Provost and the Marvin Rosenblum Professor of Mathematics. You've been listening to Who's in STEM. Who's in STEM is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the Provost at the University of Virginia. Who's in STEM is produced by Katherine Kossaboom, Rhea Verba, Mary Garner-McGee, and Katherine Hansen. Our music is composed and performed by Robert Schneider and John Ferguson of Apples in Stereo. Listen and subscribe to Who's in STEM on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about scientific and technological innovation at the university.